Bonjour, ni hao. Comme estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So just before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to some of my friends, Yaniv and Chris, who also have another podcast called The Startup Podcast. What I really enjoyed about it is they've been there, done that. And they've worked for Google, small startups, billion dollar unicorns. So if you're in the startup game, scale up game or the tech industry, and you want to cut through all the folly that everyone talks about, I highly recommend you give a listen to one of the episodes. So if you have a chance, just Google and search for Chris and Yaniv, Y-A-N-I-V, and their podcast, The Startup Podcast. Without data, you're just another person with an opinion. This famous quote by William Edwards Deming is just so true. And everyone talks about data. Some use it as a badge of honor and some think they know what it is, but don't. So let's get specific. How do we use data for the growth function, specifically in a sales and marketing context? We've already covered some of this in Willem Pauling's episode, season three, episode two, but we need to take it a bit further. We need to find out how we can use this to acquire customers. And there's no shortage of large data providers out there claiming that just download this list, automate some emails and bang, you'll you'll acquire customers. But as you'll find out, there's a lot of nuance to doing that effectively. And every one of these platforms has their own fair share of problems, whether the emails are wrong, whether it just doesn't get delivered. And then there's also this other raft of platforms that can use audience data in a central repository and then shoot it out to some of your other marketing platforms like LinkedIn, Facebook, etc, etc. So we really need to delve into this because if you don't get the data right, everything else sort of falls over. So in today's episode, we're talking to Eden Krolowitz. Now he's an MIT grad and a self-confessed data nerd. And he's worked at some of the biggest companies that use the biggest troves of data in the world. Specifically, one called DiscoverOrd, which then turned into what we call Zoom Info now. But he's also worked at Gorgeous in an e-commerce context and has now just started his own company called Exact Buyer. Today, you'll learn about the edges of what's legal and what isn't. You'll get a sneak peek into the whole shady side of the industry. You'll understand how to source data, how to make sure that it's quality, so assessing the quality to make sure you're getting what you're paying for, and then how to use it specifically for marketing and sales with concrete tactical examples, including the names of some of these platforms which he recommends to use. We'll also delve a tiny bit into the cold email outreach, but we're gonna cover that in another episode coming up in a lot more detail. Anyway, enough from me, just listen to this episode, it's not that long, and if you ever wanted to use data the right way and find a good provider so you can rely on this data to actually produce results, this is what you need to know. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Eden Krolowitz. Okay, welcome to the show, Eden. Uh, how's it going today? Good, man. How are you? I'm, I'm getting mic envy because I want that mic. It looks really good and um, <laughs> I think I might have to upgrade now. So yeah, thanks for going out and purchasing a mic just for this. You sound pretty awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yep. I wouldn't have it any other way. So uh, you're in uh, Brooklyn, New York, right? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Great. Okay. As you can see, I'm sort of in the third world internet of the deep south of Australia. But hey, just announced this week was um, the first quantum computing chip that was uh, invented by some people in, in our state, New South Wales. 
well. So that's pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Functional. Maybe you could put one in into getting one of these mics. Well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, maybe my 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 visuals and audio will sound even better in a, in a, in a year or two. Um, <laughs> but yeah, look, over to you, mate. I know we've been following each other for a while. I, I first learned yeah. of you when you were doing some work at uh, Gorgeous, and then you've since sort of branched out on your own. Why don't you just give us a quick rundown, a minute or two of like your career progression and what you're doing now? Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm I'm basically just a data nerd. I uh, I've been in the data space now for about about uh, six years, and specifically when I say data, I mean in terms of B two B information, B two B contacts and company information. Um, so I started, um, I you know my career. I started at Microsoft, you know, out of college. Uh, was a was a PM at OneNote. Um, really loved working on that product and, and getting to see what the enterprise world kind of looked like. Um, and then realized that I needed to, to kind of switch 180 degrees and went to just do music for a couple of years. Um, and when I ran out of money, I went back into tech. And the first thing I dove into was uh, was was data. And so I got a job at Discover Org, which is now Zoom Info. Yep. Um, and uh, sort of watched that progression. I was one of the first uh, data engineers there, uh, first data scientist um, at the company, and helped sort of uh, shape both of those teams. Uh, and then from there, I went to another data company called People Data Labs, worked there uh, for a short stint. I went to Gorgeous after that and then uh, helped a couple other data companies like Charm.io, another data company, and, uh, and now started ExactFire. Nice. I love it. It's short and sweet. And I think um, there's a lot of talk about startups and harvesting data and, you know, data is the new oil. Um, so it's very interesting. And, you know, there's this whole controversy around Facebook's data usage. So it is kind of like the thing that's less spoken about in Silicon Valley and in the tech world. A lot of people don't understand it. So just to give us a quick idea of like, what do you mean exactly by by this kind of data that we're talking about? Yeah, so it's a great question. And and to be fair, data can be this kind of shadowy empire uh, industry. Uh, and we can get into a little bit of some of those examples. Yes. Uh, in, in, yes. In, uh, I won't mention any names. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you know the, the privacy implications are very serious. So the type of data that I work on, it's, it's the two entities that we care about specifically are people and companies. That's Those are two entities that I focus on. And the relationship basically between those two entities, right? That's the entire focus of, of the work that I, I focus on. Um, now, when you talk about people, obviously there's sensitive stuff. With companies, it's slightly less so, unless you're talking about financial details or private private related information. But you know, when you talk about people, there's lots of types of information you can glean. You can some people have access to your bank accounts and transaction records, right? You need a specific type of a license, basically, to go and fetch that type of information or store that type of information about people. If you're doing any types of like credit reporting and you want to get certain types of fields information related to other people people's financial health you have to have again certain licenses there so we don't deal with any of that the specific data that i care about when it comes to people is what are what are they saying publicly about themselves right what are they posting about on twitter what are they writing in their sort of biography there how do they describe themselves and and what do they show the rest of the world, right? So we never are looking, we're never like, you know, breaking terms of service and like going in and trying to find data that you're not, you, you don't really want to share with other people, which is like totally fair. We more care about synthesizing the data that we do know about you and how you want to present yourself and making it easier for other people to find you if they, if they want to find you, right? Or if you're trying to get a job, whether you're, you know, whether you're trying to be sold something or you know, yeah. whether it's whether in a B2B context or a B2C context. Yeah, and I suppose like this is where I come in because if I'm like, okay, uh, let's just put this in context. We're going to a company, we want to grow 
a company and probably the biggest use case in B2B is in sales, so prospecting. So there's a lot of programs, like you just mentioned one, um, Zoom Info that you used to work for, heavily used by, by sales prospecting teams. So is Apollo.io. There's, I mean, there's heaps of them now, right? right? You've got your own now, which is great. And uh, basically what they're doing is just getting email address, first name, last name, company, title, you know, people scrape LinkedIn all the time and get this kind of data. And then you're layering over other data sets that maybe enrich the, the, the um, they turn that sort of basic data set into something a bit more interesting. And, and then we use that in, in the, as a growth lever. So question to you, how do you use this information for, for business growth? Yeah. So I, I think the, you know, the problem that exact buyer, you probably hear in the name, you know, the thing that we're trying to solve is just to improve your targeting. Right. And so that's the sort of fundamental thing that we're trying to figure out. And there's many roads that will lead you to improve targeting, but the ones that, we, that, that we're trying to figure out is how can we take all the keyword data that we know about people and try to match that to what you're looking for and create a, a, a better search paradigm today, right? So the paradigms today, if you're doing B2B search, just like kind of like you go to Google and you're just like, I don't know, maybe you, you search for like, show me someone who like knows Python in San Francisco, but like you will get some content pieces or blogs, right? You're not going to get details about those people. Yep. Or you go to LinkedIn, maybe you type that in or you use Sales Navigator or Zoom Info or one of those tools, right? A list building tool and you'll try to build lists. But what you've seen is like, that's really sloppy. And like a lot of people don't know, like what industry do I choose? Like what is Figma? Is it a design company? Is it a internet company? Is it a computer software company? Like where do I, how do I choose the right industry? So list building is this super like archaic thing that people do because like you can get very advanced and if you're good at it you know the, the super data nerds like like ourselves are like super into it like how many different permutations and variations of things can i play around and mess with but for most people it's just like i just need to find this person who is in san francisco and like knows python and java or something and speaks french or something i don't know yeah and i think um, this is where i see some some of this fall over is like the quality of the list it's like anyone can create a list a bad mm-hmm. list right oh, of data um like a prospect mm-hmm. list i could buy it off somebody there's brokers that, that lend you a list but like what's the sure. quality of that list how well has it been filtered how accurate is the data um that i'm purchasing and if i'm buying it for you know 10 cents 20 cents a lead probably arguably low um but then it's all that sort of that that filtering process i find that turns uh, maybe a low quality list into something that's really really valuable that i can work more of my time on rather than some of the the lower prospects so what sort of factors play into quality of of this data so I think it's exactly like you're saying, like how, how specific can you get? Um, that's the thing that I kind of focus on. How specific can you get about your, your ideal buyer, right? And so like, you know, prospecting, like on the one, one extreme, it's like if you're trying to find like a mate for life, like a partner that you're going to be with, it's like, you're not going to be like, well, like, are they in New York? And uh, are they between this and this age? And that's good enough for me. Like, I'm just going to use those two filters and like make a list. Or do you want to know a lot more? Like, do you know, do they have the same interests as me or do they have whatever in a b2b context in an actual sales context you might say like hey you know i see that the head of growth is the exact person that that is going to use a tool like mine because it's an, i I'm, I'm selling an api for for growth and the head of growth is charged with like growing at scale right growing super fast um, yep. using this data making sure that it's highly accurate because it's all about improving cac improving efficiency like that's going to be my target maybe even more so than a vp of sales which is also charged with revenue goals and doing all of that, but it, maybe it's more account based, right? Maybe it's less, you know, uh, data driven, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, those are the types of things where we're we're trying to help people identify. Um, for example, what we do is we look in your CRM, right, and we analyze everyone in your CRM, and then we say like, okay, based on who was in your CRM, we think like you're selling better to this company or to this certain persona than others, right? And because we have more filters and just 
the highest five, like revenue industry, you know, the, the usual suspects, because we have maybe hundreds or even thousands of different features or attributes to calculate on. Now you're getting incredibly granular, right? And now you can spend more of your marketing dollars targeting those people first, right? And then maybe going to the sort of secondary and tertiary you know, uh, segments that you want. Yeah, because there's this classic sort of argument like, hey, micro-targeting versus mass media targeting. Obviously, everyone in the ad industry uh, goes, no, don't micro-target. That's bad because they make, you know, a a percentage, you know, the business model is a percentage of aggregate revenue, right, spend. Um, So they're very much in that camp. There is some validity to that argument in terms of like mass brand salience or awareness of the brand can lead to sales. Um, But it's a very at the initial stage of a, of a small organization or a medium-sized organization, you just don't have the luxury of, of paying all that money um, to, right. to generate that. So, you know, you are forced to to think about targeting and segmenting your market to smaller, more, I would say, um, buyers that are within your ICP or ideal customer profile or right. um, that match your offering really well. And, and it, you're right, it does come down to some of those more granular parameters um, when we're making this hard decision about where do we start? And then that's broaden out from there, like a land and expand segmentation approach. So yeah, do you see, um, just coming back to the quality thing, what about recency as well? Because I've noticed some people saying these lists, like, especially during COVID, people have switched businesses so many times, like, <laughs> are they even at that company anymore? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's one of the biggest things with, you know, with a lot of companies is making sure that the data is updated in real time. So we when we talk about real time data, it's, it means like, you want to understand when you're looking at a company or a person where they are at that moment in time, not again, like you said, seven months ago, where they used to work or when the last time it was updated. Now, the issue with a lot of data companies, right? And this is like the thing that most data companies face is, you know, how do we update the entire database? Like, how do we update whatever, 400 million contacts, like every week, every day, like all the time, you know, every day, or or do we, how do we subscribe to these changes? And so the thing is you're, you know, what, what we've sort of come up with is, um, well, we're not going to have, uh, our database is, is never going to be fully up to date and no one else's database because that's impossible. So what we're going to do is we're going to let you build a list based on um, the information that we currently have. And then just when you're exporting it right before you put, plug it into your campaign, we're going to we're gonna basically fetch real-time data on all those people. So we're going to fetch the most up-to-date job information about them, make sure they still work at the company that they say they're working at, verify that their email actually works. If they have a new email at a new company, verify that that actually works. And so we do this sort of all that verification process. And I feel like that's, if you're, if anyone who's doing B2B lead gen at scale, you know, every large agency, they all care about this, right? Because it's all about efficiency. It's like, it's yeah, all about scale yeah. and efficiency and doing it uh, you know, doing it often and doing it well. So uh, for them, it's it's really important. I think recency, as people have more and more online digital identities, like that becomes even more important because it's like, what are they posting about? You know, maybe yeah. that can yeah. be an action or a signal to say, hey, this person's really interested in, you know, maybe getting VC funding now if you're a VC or whatever it is. Yes, like are they in market or are they out in market? I think is the thing we want to know. And like some of those signals, right. if they're not recent, they can be out or in, you know, you don't know. Um, so I like how you're doing this, so the, the enrichment validation at the end uh, of the process, which which makes sense to me because I was like, the processing power to update all this stuff every day would be, would be insane. So I get it. We talked about one use case here, alluding to in B2B sales, which is like enrichment of um, profiles when you're doing a prospect. So um, everybody uses, you know, generally a CRM at some degree. Uh, And a lot of CRMs then have an add-on where you can enrich that contact. So maybe you start with a name and email 
or just a name. And then, you know, you can use these third-party tools sometimes uh, joined in with the CRM to then give a lot more clarity to who that person is, what they do, all that kind of thing. So what are the main ways that works practically uh, for companies that you've seen? Yeah, so there's a lot of different teams that rely on that CRM data, right? It's, you know, you have sales team, marketing team, uh, customer success teams, support teams. So typically it depends, you know, every everyone, when you enrich that data, typically what you're enriching is is to to get the, the things we were talking about earlier, which is making sure do that does that person still work at the company? Has that person changed jobs? You know, where they're the director of sales and now they're you know the CRO. So you can understand sort of where they are. So on the customer success side, right, you want to enrich that information so you can make sure that like if your champion now leaves that company, you want to know hey, I, I really need to go talk to someone else at that company to make sure that we don't lose this account. Or I need to, and and I by the way, I also want to follow this person to whatever company they go next to make sure that they also use our service as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly. that's really useful for on the customer success side. For sales and marketing, it's more of just identifying, um, it's kind of like you said, are they in market? You know, has anything changed for them recently? And then obviously just making sure that their contact information is accurate, right? Their, their phone number, their direct dials, um, their email addresses, making sure that we have, that you have correct information on that is important for whatever marketing campaigns or you know sales campaigns you're going to run. Yeah, so look, um, and just getting to tools here. I know this is getting a bit tactical, but like, yeah. um, I know I've integrated like Clearbit into Salesforce and HubSpot before. Um, sometimes the CRMs have their own sort of version of that that are they're just reselling those services. So let's just say we've got a list prospect list in in our CRM, but we don't know about this world of data enrichment. What's the ways to go about doing that? So just like you mentioned, there there are tools, there are several tools that exist that have done data enrichment. They've existed for a long time. Probably the the most well-known ones are Clearbit and ZoomInfo, I would say now. There, there are several others that do you know, variations or have specific specialties, but it just is a question from, from you how does it actually work practically? Or- well, a lot of the time they don't come out of the box, do they? Like you get a CRM and it's just like, okay, you start with a list to upload your list of prospects. And then it's just like nothing else. And a lot of people, I think in smaller sales teams, maybe less experienced, aren't aware that they can take this to the, the next level. And then that will help them prioritize their time as a sales and marketing team uh, in the right direction rather than methodically just go top down to bottom of the list, right? Yeah. So typically how that used to work was, you know, you have your your data in Excel spreadsheet or something, and then you would go to ZoomInfo or Clearbit, you'd upload your, your CSV, your spreadsheet, and then they'd basically fill out all the information, append all the, the new information, tell you if it's verified or not. And then you would use that, plug that into whatever you're, you know, back into your CRM or whatever. Now they have yeah. these marketplaces. So the two probably most common CRMs are Salesforce and HubSpot. Um, and both of them have marketplaces where, just like you mentioned, you can have applications in those marketplaces that your sales okay. ops team or rev ops team or marketing ops team can can use to integrate into. And then that will basically just keep the data fresh on whatever cadence you choose. So let's say you say, I want this specific subset or segment updated all the time because they're our customers. And maybe I want this other segment updated you know, on some other cadence. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, okay, that's great, typically great, great. how it works. And it just just plugs directly into the CRM um, and does it whenever you want. Okay, so let's get into the, the dark side then a bit, uh, if you if you want to go there. Like, um, oh, yeah. you know, we know there's these um, shadowy markets where people buy and sell data. You always hear these um, these hacks that happen to these companies and then, you know, the whole database is on the dark web and they're ransoming it or selling it for free or, or with money. Um, so tell me a bit about the stories you've heard and, and what's the bad stuff that goes on here? Yeah, I mean, all of that happens. That's without a doubt, right? There's a lot of very interesting 
things that go on with data. I mean, obviously, a lot of those leaks are are user like username password leaks or some combination of those where they're um, you know they're, they're leaking kind of sensitive that kind of sensitive information. Um, there's lots of ways to to source data, um, and I would say there's a lot of companies that that trade data. There's a lot of these like data unions um, that people operate. Um, sometimes they're legal, sometimes they're not. Um, and that's just kind of the truth of it. Uh, some of them is just like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna trade you all these IP addresses tied to emails. Sometimes they're passing uh, maids, which are uh, mobile device IDs uh, tied to other IP addresses. And so basically, it's just one huge identity resolution job where all of these data companies are sharing data and and trying to figure out who has what data to fill in the gaps that they don't have. Right. That's that's sort of the data industry in a nutshell. A lot of different players are using each other's data. Um, but in terms of the shadowy data that you're mentioning, like, you know, those like huge Facebook leaks and all those, um, you know, there are some people that 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 use that data. Um, there's very few people that I know that that are public about uh, using that data or um, or even have it even show it in their applications because of privacy uh, implications. But um, you can get public data from all those different sources. Uh, it's it's it it's a bit shadowy, though. It is. I mean, I think. Um, I think even in your world, maybe I would imagine that there's a lot of companies whose underlying data sets have come from some some shadowy places. Um, yeah, so. look, I had can't say who uh, very successful company now, multi billion dollar publicly listed company. I met them when they first started, and they fell upon the customer database of a company they used to work for, and they were started up a new sort of rival company. And oh well, they started with a whole list of that other company's customers. And then because they had that, they could approach them all directly. And because they were customers of that one, they were selling a very similar service. It was just easy to then onboard and grow. But the story they sold was, oh, no, we're just really good at what we do. And here's our financial backers. And you know, it's our brand and it's our product and blah, blah, blah. But no, the real story was a customer database from their rival was acquired and used for the, the start phase of their growth, for example. So that happens all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, that's that that without a doubt happens all the time. I think people are start you know, we're still in the wild west of figuring out how to even harness customer data and like secure it in any any sensible way. <laughs> so so what I also worked at yeah. So what's legal though? Like different countries, we've got GDPR, we've got, you know, the um, CCPA, is it in California or something? Um, That's right. You know, different legislation. What's legal, what's not legal? Does it depend on your jurisdiction or? It does depend on your jurisdiction. I think things are sort of converging towards some of the laws that the GDPR and CCPA, uh, CCPA implemented. Um, so with GDPR, there's basically a rule around legitimate interest, right? So you can use someone's, uh, legitimate business interests. So you can use someone's uh, work email to reach out to them in a cold fashion if you think that they have a reason to buy your product, which is a pretty generic thing. Um, and that's basically like, the I, I think the only reason why that law got passed because there was this giant fucking loophole in it. Uh, that was just like, yeah, like we're going to protect everyone's privacy unless we want to sell them something. Um, and then I think CCPA is trying to do the same. But, but one thing that you know, the U.S. laws are a lot more lax about is sort of like someone's someone's direct personal email, whereas in in Europe they're very much not that. You cannot you cannot 
you know, reach out to people's personal emails for any reason, work related or otherwise. Unless um, they've, as far as as far as I understand, yeah. Unless they, unless they've opted, opted in. in, yeah, yeah, That's exactly, right. yeah, yeah. Unless they've opted in, right? So they, if if they come to you and sign up for a mailing list, then certainly you can reach them. So you can't do a lot of this. If I came to you as a as a data broker and went, hey, um, can I have a prospect list for this country in Europe that I want to market to? I would be not really able to use that for. I mean, I could probably upload it to my sales CRM and then make a direct approach, but I wouldn't be able to use that data to make the direct approach specifically. Depends on where you're contacting them, right? So it depends okay. on if you're calling them or emailing their work email or emailing their personal email. I think there's different rules for each and I'm, okay. I haven't I haven't dug into it, um, but I know that you can reach out to them. I mean, you can, you can, for instance, use, if you source the data in a compliant way and someone, so there's like double opt-ins, um, you can use that data and let's say upload it to Facebook and then target those people on Facebook. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You can you can do that if the data is opted in at some point. Okay, so we've talked about um, using uh, data and acquiring it for um, sales, direct direct sales approaches or outbound, right? So we're maybe cold emailing them, or we're using the phone number to call them, or get through the gatekeeper, etc. Or we're finding out their social media accounts, and then we can sort of DM them on there if they connect with us. Um, same in like LinkedIn, a lot of sales teams do that. Um, uh, but what about if we want to use it to warm them up? Uh, with with targeted uh, paid advertising, so um, a lot of there's a couple of big ABM platforms out there that I know do this, where you can set your targeting parameters and then all your spend is very very targeted and there's not much wastage. So instead of relying on, uh, example, I go into LinkedIn, I go I want to target all CEOs. Um, sometimes that targeting parameter is a bit out, especially on Facebook, the same kind of thing. Like everyone can just call themselves right. a CEO, but they're not really a CEO. Um, so, right. you know, when you're starting with this more granular data, you can upload that into some of these programs and then create what's called an audience targeting profile inside that ad platform so that you're only targeting those people. Um, do you see a lot of that usage for this data as well as another use case? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one major use case for it. And I think there's, there's different players in that uh, there's like live ramp which sort of onboards everyone's data and then sort of builds audiences through that uh, there's you know the metadata and the, the sixth sense and yeah. demand base and those abm platforms that T terminus i think is another one of those specifically digital advertising yeah. um so there's there's several of those i think it's it's super useful to you know when when I was thinking, especially in a B2B context, when you're, you know, you don't have millions of buyers, you might have like 50 to 60,000 true buyers yeah. of your, like forever, that's your entire market. Um, and so, and so maybe that's what, you know, that I want to spend all my marketing dollars on those 50,000 people. And I don't care if I've shown them impressions 300 times, like I just keep hitting them until they buy from me. Um, I feel like that's a, that's a valid strategy for, you know, for a lot of companies. I, I did that myself as the head of growth at a data company. We use our own data to just strictly target those specific people who we knew are, are going to be our buyers um and it's 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 very successful i think even in a in completely unnuanced way that i did it it was very successful so i'm, I'm sure if you're using something like metadata which is a b testing and and testing audiences and creative and messaging you know that's going to be way more successful yeah yeah i mean um so much better than just doing it manually logging to each of these programs and like linkedin and facebook and then twitter and doing separate campaigns like just do it all out of the one box it makes sense to me and, and you draw from the same audience right um so a lot yeah a lot of the better companies they use that sort of centralized customer targeting database to then put into the audience targeting of each of those platforms um how do, how do people get this wrong what are the big failure points let's just say I'm a bit less experienced in in this realm. Perhaps think back to younger, younger days, and that maybe some of the missteps you could easily make if you're not aware of this. Where do you see 
data usage in this context fail? Yeah, I think we, we touched on some of it before, which is just like recency and accuracy of the audiences you're building, right? And especially if you're thinking about building it uh, in the context of like, you know, digital advertising, uh, you really don't want to, you really don't want to fuck it up because every time you, you you mess up one field, you know, you know, you choose the wrong industries, or you choose, you know, you multiply those effects together, and, and you very quickly end up with an audience that maybe like twenty to thirty percent as effective as it as it could be, just because it's inaccurate. So I think I think that as as uh, unsexy as it is, is like truly the biggest, the highest leverage uh, activity is just making sure that you get accurate data um, that's actually like classified correctly. Yeah. Um, and I think most people sort of skip over that step because either people tell them like, just trust us, this data is right. Um, and they're like, okay. And they sort of move on and they focus on everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think if people really just spend time there and are like, are you really sure? Like, can you, can we, can we sit here and talk about why this data is accurate? And like, can we, can we spot check a hundred records? Right. And just to make sure that they're actually accurate, right. It's not going to take you all day. You can just spend an hour and just spot check them and say, you know, is this recent? Is it relevant? Is this really who we want to be targeting? Um, I think that's 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 the place where founders make the biggest mistake because what they'll do is they'll end up throwing it into these emails email sending platforms. Um, they'll you know just like put in like five thousand you know contacts into this campaign and they just let it ride, right? Just like you know within the next two months we're totally gonna get like seven hundred demos. It's gonna be great, and then they realize like halfway in that's like well now our mailboxes don't work anymore because like none of those people work at those companies. We got a ton of like bounce backs. Like everyone's mad at us because they're just like. You know, they're, they're pissed at Jim who left the company. And so now they're marking you as spam. Um, so it's, you know, you can get, you know, the, the more you focus really on just like doing it, uh, focusing on the accuracy part, I think really makes everything down funnel from that way more successful. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like, you know, uh, everyone says, and even sales and prospecting, like, you know, spend a disproportionate amount of time on the first part, which is making sure your, your prospect list is like high quality and valid. And then everything else, you'll save yourself so much time. So speaking about that cold email, um, I am going to cover this in a separate episode about, you know, cold email outreach, actually just after this one. But before we do that, like, where do you see the biggest missteps there? Because you mentioned IP blacklisting. Uh, I know that happens a lot. I just had this happen to a couple of uh, companies that, that I was talking to and they were using their own corporate email Gmail address, the salespeople to then do cold outreach. And obviously, you know, after mm. a couple of times, they're like, who the hell are these people? Mark, mark, mark. And then I had to go to the domain blacklist and, uh, you know, checking that and they didn't have a process for that. So IT weren't monitoring that. So then they were like wondering why all their customer service, you know, um, calls and sales, you know, subsequent sales account management wasn't going to the people and they weren't aware of these things. And there's a whole communication breakdown. So that that was one example. Is that the biggest problem you yeah. see happening? Or? Uh, I, I think there's, you know, there's, there's other inefficiencies, which is just like, kind of like we mentioned, like just throwing, throwing a bunch of people onto a list and just like letting it ride. Even if, even if it doesn't work, it's just like, how do you, it's, you, you have to wait maybe two, three months for you to get through that entire list. Right. So if you're not prioritizing those people, like now, hopefully you get sales, but you won't know, you know, for another three months, you know, what the total outcome of that will be. Um, I think those are the issues, but in, in terms of cold email, um, you know, warm, not warming up domains enough, I think is, is definitely one or being overzealous, you know, with, with new campaigns. Um, I think that's definitely one, you know, there's advanced things that you can do, like um, using multiple different domains. So you can use exactbuyer.org, exactbuyer.net, exactbuyer.io, um, and then round robin, even within a single campaign to use those. Um, you can even take it a step further and do some, you know, we're experimenting with this right now, but we're actually using GPT-3 to automate sending and personalizing emails. 
Um, so you can do that based on the data that we have, right, about someone. I know someone's a VP of sales. I look at their about me, right, and I could take that information on LinkedIn and then also look at their skills and what languages they speak and where they live. And if I was a you know, SDR needing to craft this message, you know, I'd have to really think about all those things and then tie that into the first sentence or two of what I'm sending. Um, now you have machines that can do it just as well, if not better, and at scale. Um, and so it, it just makes sense to sort of use those types of things to do that. The other benefit of, of doing that is now um, you're not, it doesn't look as, as similar every time you send an email, right? So it's not like the algorithm that Google's using is not saying like, hey, like he, I, we, we recognize that all they're changing are company name and first name. Oh, uh, the copies, email, but everything the, the cut and paste kind of like format thing that gets detected really easily, whereas hyper-personalized every single email different doesn't trip the, the anti-spam. Barriers as much. Right, and you can and you can even set the the different models now to you know you can set the weights to basically be you know more and more different, right? Or you can make it more creative every every single email, which can make it seem more of what you know a natural human in theory would do, um, but in reality, humans are you know someone who's an SDR has to send 120 emails a day is probably not being hyper personalized either. Yeah, no, I mean I, I get all those like terrible DMs on LinkedIn as well, like just the. the just the standard sort of sales approach thing. Hey, great. Thanks for connecting. And then the, they just go into this like this 300 word diatribe of like selling to you. And you're like, oh, I just yeah. literally clicked accept. Like, who are you? And I think some people forget there's an incentive for like output. Uh, so like, hey, I sent 100 emails today. I'm like, yeah, but how many of those responded? You know, did you piss, you know, 50 of those 100 off because right. you just had something that was meaningless? I think there's a bit of understanding there between output and the outcome. So what is a good, if you're doing, using this data, right, for let's just say marketing, um, so some of the advertising to support some of this manual outreach, then you do manual outreach. Like what is a good sort of response rate on some of this? Let's just say we've got a really good quality list that we you know we source from you know, maybe someone such as yourself. Um, and we put that yeah. and we're using that data. Like you know, what can you expect as a as a response return? So I think the, you know, the, when it comes to cold emails, specifically talking about emails, there's a couple major, you know, metrics that we look at. You're looking at bounce rates. So, uh, so first, deliverability. How many actually get into the, you know, into the domain? You really want to have super high deliverability. It needs. To, it should be like 97 percent or higher. Uh, if it's lower than that, um, either you have you're having some troubles with your domain, and maybe you should, you know, t- take a look at some internal tooling. Um, but you should really get high, uh, you know, high rates of deliverability. In terms of the the validity of the email addresses, um, there's you know, oftentimes you're going to get from different vendors like probable email addresses, which means basically that that data vendor like guessed at an email and just said like, yeah, we think this is it. Go, you know, go for it. You try and let us know. Um, and so that, you know, there are certain data vendors that, that take that approach and they sell data for super cheap. Uh, but then you're going to see, you know, 15 to 20 percent bounce rates are higher. And then very quickly, your campaign is going to fizzle out. Yeah. Right. Um, so so what I think, uh, you know, something that we that we see when we use our own data, we dog food our own data, we're seeing like two and a half percent bounce rates or lower. Um, I think you want to be below 3% is typically a benchmark that I hear um, if you can, but it's, it's, it's harder to get below 3% than I think a lot of people think. Yep. Um, but I think anywhere, anywhere below that, you're in a pretty, pretty solid range. When it comes to reply rates, I mean, I think that really depends on like the copy, a, like how the target, offer, yeah, 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 the copy, the offer, but I think still mostly how targeted you are, right? Yeah. It's like, you can send someone a pretty shitty message, but if they're really looking for your API and there's like only one other on the market, like they'll probably take the call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> so it depends how competitively saturated it is and like how how in market they are. Yeah, I think there's a and then sure. and then it's sort of like secondarily is like the offer. You can have a shitty offer, but if there's heaps of demand, it's going to work. But otherwise, you know, uh, crafting, um, you know, the reason why they want to buy your product and like sort of make it relevant to them. I think you know that that saves a huge chunk. And I have to admit, I've always been terrible at the copy and the message and the it's imagery hard. and everything. I, I've I've only been good at the data part. Okay, so that's that's kind of why I stuck to that. That's good. And I let I let other people help me with the other parts. What about when we're searching for for a company to supply us data? Like, how do we make a good decision there, depending on what we're going to use it for? Yeah, I, I think it's it's getting harder than ever, to be honest, to to sort of run these tests. And we, we obviously we run them all the time as as part of our evaluation phase with customers. Um, I think the best thing is just like try to get try to get some data from each of them even if you need to pay like a couple hundred bucks whatever it is like the investment ultimately that you're going to make in, in your sales and marketing mm -hmm. the amount that you're going to spend on a, a couple hundred dollar test is like totally insignificant um so i always tell people like sp spend the time up front to like really do a legitimate test um you know you can always run them through uh, run them through uh known sort of email bouncers um there's, there's tools that allow you to basically upload lists where you can see how many of those emails are actually valid, means, meaning yeah. they'll, they'll be deliverable, go to the mail server, through the mail server. Mm. Um, you can you know ask them about verification. You can have people just actually make the phone calls, right, for phone numbers and see on a list of 100, you know, what's the accuracy. Um, I think that's, that's the most important part. There's no kind of like shirking that part i think a lot of people just skip that step and are just like i don't want to do all that work like we're just going to go with the incumbent because like no one's going to get fired for going with the incumbent so i think that's that's what you'll typically find you know i see they just work the volume like oh well if we buy enough of it we do enough of it you know it's going to sort of work itself out and i think it's a weak that's argument right. but i mean it's there's some validity in that but you know great if you're a big brand with a huge budget big team not so good if you're a small team so yeah like you know if you've got to cut down a tree sharp on the axe is kind of what you're saying I've seen I've seen lots of companies succeed with the volume game. I'm not 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 to knock the volume game. I think that's also super important. But but I think ultimately, you know, you're going to burn through all of your all of your leads. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, you don't do that with too much of a bad taste in people's mouth. So I think you need to be kind of a, a little uh, nuanced when cool. you do that. How many years have you been doing this? Um, since about 2017, so about five years. Five years, so five, five, five years. seven. That's 35 Silicon Valley years arguably yeah, so, yeah, exactly, so exactly. a long time you almost retired um right um <laughs> you must have seen a lot of changes back in the day the cowboy i would say even more cowboy data days um before cambridge analytica before all that and then um where we are now so can you explain to me what it was like before where we are now and then perhaps where it's heading yeah so i mean if you want to go all the way back, I mean, you know, there's been, you know, there was the yellow pages and the white pages, you know, when we were growing up and we were, we were using those and those are the first data vendors ever. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and, and you could say, you know, Equifax and, and those other companies, list building companies, um, uh, Dun and Bradstreet, certainly some of those older companies, but there's, they, they sort of come in waves, you know, there's the, the Dun and Bradstreet, the Equifaxes, and then in the two thousands, there's, you know, some other companies started to come around like the discover orgs and the zoom infos of the world. Um, and typically what happens is those got consolidated. Right. And then you sort of saw the wrap leafs and the clear bits and, you know, full contact and all these other API services start to come around. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I think the, the interesting in, in the wild west, I mean, even when I joined, uh, when I joined discover org, 
it was very interesting to me because they had 300 people basically uh, calling, calling, calling you up and saying, Hey John, is this still your phone number? Yes. Like mark it in the database. Like this is still John's phone number. Wow. And that's how they verified all the information, right? They would actually like email out and call people and that's how they would manually verify. Hmm. Um, not a scalable process at all. At the time, I think they had like 4 million contacts in their database because they could only like they had hundreds and hundreds of people in the office around me doing this manual task. That kind of blew my mind when I first joined because I was just like, hey, this is there has to be a better way. You know, it's 2017. I know like deep learning is a thing and like there's lots of very sophisticated ways, even unsophisticated ways of doing this better. And I think that's that's interesting to see how we've sort of progressed even in five years from a place where we had people at a company that's making you know over a hundred million dollars a year in revenue, um, having people manually update a database to now a system where a small company like ours can do all of that with you know a handful of engineers. So I think the tools have been you know, the the way to understand and classify companies and and uh, get data at scale has never been easier than it has today. It's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Where do you think it's heading? Are we going to have like barcodes tattooed into our backs and minority report style sort of like yeah, eye retina sort of scanning information and follow around with what, personalized what would the bar? <laughs> what would the barcode on your back lead me to? What would I be buying if I scanned the barcode on your back? I don't know. I, I'm just bringing in some Hollywood sort of theatrics here, but you know what I mean? Um What's the future of this? I mean, I think the future is extracting more meaning out of, out of, uh, people's profiles and improving the search process. I, I, I genuinely believe that that's ultimately what people are trying to get. The, people are always trying to get better results, more accurate results. And I think that doesn't happen in the, the paradigm that, that exists now with list building, right? No one's going to spend two hours sort of putting in all these different features. So yeah. I think as we build out the knowledge graph of understanding like all the relationships that you have, right? I know that you've worked at certain companies and you probably know the people who worked at those companies at the times that you were there, right? Mm -hmm. So I can start to build those relationships and there's recommendations that people have provided you on this podcast or elsewhere, right? Yep. Um, but if I know that all of your digital identities are tied and I when analyze the text behind all all your digital identities and I analyzed this podcast and I created a transcription using AI and I took all the transcripted notes, then I could be like, hey, John really talks about these things all the time. And now I can add that to his profile and sell him oh, those shit. things. Someone's, about the someone's already done that to me. Oh, crap. They're going to have all this personal champagne data and everything about me. Oh, no. <laughs> That's right. You're going to get ads for champagne even more than you do now. Hey, so I, just quickly, because I, I forgot to talk about this, but um, I know in the back end, a lot of these companies, because I worked in Silicon Valley, sometimes the product that they have, let's just say they have a sort of a classified site or it's a buy and sell sort of like matching service, right? A lot of the time underneath, they're mining all this data, um, augmenting it with other data that they're harvesting and sort of compiling it and then repackaging that and selling it to like investment companies or hedge funds or they're selling it to um, other industry organizations that then use for some other purposes. There's this whole sort of like wholesale sales en masse of, of these big customer lists. I know it was kind of like uh, in Silicon Valley, like, oh, how big is your database? Oh, my database is this big. And it's like, oh, mine's bigger. You know, it's like this very uh, tit for tat kind of like thing about how, how much data everyone has. Is that still relevant? Right. Does that still happen? Or is that a bit old school now? It's, you know, it's a really good question. And I do remember those times too, which people are talking about like pe petabytes of data, like how many flops and like Google flops of data do you have? Um, I think uh, I think it depends. I mean, obviously, like as a data person, like you know, you can't just like throw garbage in there and be like, I have a petabyte of just like complete garbage. Like it's it's wonderful. Um, 
I think if it's relevant data, it certainly can be made more useful now than ever before. Well, is that sort of buy and sell brokering thing behind closed doors between, you know, startups and stuff? Does that still go on or are we sort of a bit right. mature now where it's a bit old school? So I, I don't think it's old school. I think, honestly, people are, are sort of trying to make something old look new. I mean, if you think about Equifax, right, and Experian and all these companies, right, it's like they're selling data about you. Uh, to companies, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're helping uh, businesses get credit scores, right? And they're analyzing those businesses and trying to say, you know, should should a bank give them a loan, right? Mm-hmm. So they sell that data to banks to um, you know to help them analyze how much they should underwrite. And um, different data providers will sell data to different uh, to different industries, right? There's certain data providers that only sell to insurance industries to help them to understand um, how to underwrite. Uh, you know, business insurance for for very specific places. Um, if you're, for instance, I'll give you an example. If you're um, if you're doing construction, um, right, and and you might get business insurance that says like, if you say, hey, I do, uh, you know, plumbing and and uh, you know, I only work on ranches. Like, I'm never doing roofs, right? I'm never on a roof, so like, I don't need that level of insurance, right? Uh, but then on your like Instagram is like a picture of you like on a roof, like drinking a beer, right? So like now that company might you know, want that Instagram data of your business to be like, is there any pictures of anyone on a roof, right? And that can tell them information that they would, would then sell to these insurance companies and say, hey, you know, maybe you should be careful about this or the level of risk might be higher than you think it, it is. So right? for that so, policy, you know, maybe up their premium because they're not sort of telling it like Maybe up the premium, yeah. just just a hair. Yeah, because they're, they're spending too many times, too many pictures of beers on roofs. Yeah, so it's like just layering all this stuff together for a particular use case. And, and that does happen. I mean, I've seen it happen, but yeah, it's continuing to happen, I yeah. suppose. But maybe what's changing the landscape is like, how much, maybe some more clarity around what people are divulging, whether they're aware of, of that opt-in process and, and how that's actually being used about them. Because sometimes, you know, we are our own worst enemies with the amount of information we disclose unwillingly. So, so you're just saying that this does happen, like, you know, insurance company will go to Instagram, hey, give me some information on these users and see if there's any images hashed, you know, that have been AI labeled as roof. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's absolutely the future. And, and if it's not happening already, it's, it's it, you know, it'll happen in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if you're, if you're, if we're talking about stances on like, you know, what data is, is, is going to be used or people think is acceptable. You know, my stance is like anything you put publicly about yourself is, is fair game for anyone to, to see. Um, I think people, I don't know a lot of people who have a lot, uh, a lot, you know, crazier versions, which is like any data that exists about you, private or public, like it's fair game. Uh, I don't know if I feel feel very much like on that end of it. Um, but I do think that, you know, people people will always want to be found, right? Uh, people, uh, companies will always want to be found, right? No one, you know, by virtue of being a company. So I think it's it's less about, I think we'll, we'll constantly think about what data we're going to be sharing. But at the end of the day, people want to be found and we need to come up with better ways to help companies and people get found. Yeah. What about some books that you've read recently? If you have time, I know you're a very busy founder, but is there a book that's really changed your mind recently for the, the better and your way of thinking? I recently read The Power Broker, and that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting book about... Yeah, it's a fascinating book about Robert Moses, um, who is... Uh, um, it's, it's called The Power Broker, Robert Moses in the Fall of, of New York. Um, and basically it, it just outlines the power that he had shaping, you know, basically what New York looked like. Um, he built most of the bridges and tunnels in New York. He built almost all of the, the, the parks on Long Island and upstate New York. Um, he was just like in power for like 50 years in charge of like the parks department. But he like, I think he, people said that he had 
more power than anyone except for maybe like the governor of New York or like FDR, wow. um, if you've heard of him. So it was a very interesting, he was an incredibly interesting person, um, very mixed legacy. Um, <laughs> I guess whenever I read things like that, I just think about, uh, you know, it, it, especially when, when I, it's a, a thing that's so foreign to me, which is government and policy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just sort of a little eye opening on the power that one person can have in shaping, you know, a city like New York City. Well, that's that's that's, uh, that's great. It's uh, very different to some of the other ones people mentioned. Uh, what about a favorite website resource that that you'd recommend other people check out? So uh, this is something I posted about recently. This is something for the I don't know if you if you're a basketball fan, but uh, if there's any NBA nerds, uh, data yep. nerds out there, there's yep. uh, there's a website called Cleaning the Glass, and it's an incredible website. It's it's it basically takes all the stats that you can get on the NBA website, but it also um, analyzes them in comparison to every other player. So you can see, uh, you know, not just how many you know points per game a player has or assists, but um, you know, in clutch time, what does that look like, and how does that compare to every other player, um, every other player at their position? Um, it just sort of shows you the game of basketball in a very in a very nuanced way, and it even generates new stats that you that you. You know, haven't heard of. And I think wow. that's the kind of paradigm. Honestly, I, I'm kind of thinking about building Zach Buyer in in that model of how do you take something that people know so well, like ba- the game of basketball, right, and just like blow it up completely into like like just like that's dissect cool. it. So you, so you can take your own data sets and things. like merge it together and make your own sort of like big big query kind of like analysis on that, or is it sort of restricted to their UI? It's more restricted to their UI, okay. I believe. I'm not sure if they have an API and you can access that data. Um, there are ways to get other feeds of NBA data, but just the the guy who also um, who built it, um, he used to work for the Portland Trailblazers and the Philadelphia 76ers, wow. um, and he's just like an incredible basketball mind in any case. So the fact that he's sort of bringing this explanation of basketball and data, sort of fusing them together, that um, is cool for me. It just it's. Yeah, it's a different. It's way very of sort of Moneyball. It reminds me of Moneyball esque, you know, the movie. Super yeah. Moneyball. Yeah yeah, 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 exactly like. There's that. another yeah. one actually um, that does the world of cricket, uh, which is a very big uh, game, um, yeah. the second biggest game in the world after soccer um, by the numbers, uh, called Crick Info, and they do the same sort of thing. Like, what's the batting average, bowling averages, all these kind of things, and every game is just live. Yeah. Uh, live data sets going in. So, um, what about a piece of tech you can't do without that helps you do your job better? Could be hardware or software. I think Slack probably. I think yep. I'm on Slack more than most other things. I know it's kind of like a not a sexy answer. Um, what is something that I use a lot more than I should? Probably Notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is terrible because I worked at OneNote. So yeah. Fair enough. No, I love it. Um, what about um, a quote or a meme or something funny about the, the the data industry that makes you laugh every time? You know, I don't have a meme, but I, I, I do want to mention Oren Hoffman. Are you familiar with Oren Hoffman? No, who's that? So Oren Hoffman is, he's one of the smartest guys in, in, in the data space. I would say he's, to me, the person I probably read most about. And, and um, he, so he has a company called SafeGraph. Um, and he's he has another podcast of specifically it's called World of Das specifically about data as a service. So okay. he's a great great person to know. So I would say I'm not very funny, but you should check out Arn Hoffman. Okay, great. Uh, I'm sure there's some social media posts we could go through <laughs> and then have a laugh at. Um, that's cool. And uh, back to you now. Um, I know you've been very subtly um, talking about what you do, but um, you know I've been following your progress for a while. I'm really impressed with what you're doing. Tell us a bit about. What you're working on right now, and and how can um, what's the value for for people who may be interested? Yeah, so you know, I'm, we're building Exact Buyer, and it's basically kind of like we mentioned, we're we're just trying to make B two B data more accurate, 
And um, that starts with really, really boring things, like just making sure like we have the correct address for most companies around the world, right? Um, it's actually a much harder problem than you would think because every country has a different way of, uh, you know, different format for their addresses. And especially uh, Japan, don't know where people are located. Yeah, yeah. There's like the Asian countries are completely different. Um, you know, fractions are crazy. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to solve a lot of the sort of boring problems around just like understanding, you know, just getting business data for, for global companies. Um, but then we're also trying to analyze the text of the way that businesses describe themselves um, and help users find those companies based on how they describe themselves. So the ultimate goal of what we're trying to say is we want to look at all of your public identities, all the ways in which you as a person or a company describe yourself um, and then help other folks uh, search for you specifically and make sure that they're they're building more accurate lists to be able to sell to. That's great. I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem. I know I've done this personally and I've had a lot of hits and misses with different providers over the years. And I think it does, um, if I can make one recommendation to anyone who's listening, I'm like, just pay for quality <laughs> and, and do your own tests and uh, that will like return you way more. Like don't cheapen out and go, I want to get 10 cents instead of 15 cents per contact. Like pay the highest amount, I would say almost, uh, you know, double check, but you get what you pay for. Yeah. The ROI on data is like, it's always like a hundred X, which is why it's kind of like stupid to put into a slide or, or a presentation. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So, okay. And uh, what if someone uh, is really interested about what you're saying, what's getting into contact with you? What's the best method um, just to have strike up an initial conversation? Yeah, so you can reach reach uh, out to me um, via email, idan at exactbuyer.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to get a hold of, so just hit me up there. Uh, if you want to see my really, really terrible NBA takes on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter as well. <laughs> What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's just my name, Idan Krolowitz, at Idan Krolowitz. Are you a Nets fan? or I'm a Blazers fan, Portland Trail Blazers okay. fan. Okay, oh, well, okay, very yeah. different. Okay, fair enough, uh, from yep. back in the day. Okay, awesome. Uh, hey, well, uh, Idan, I just want to thank you for the time. I know you're a very busy founder. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This is fun. So there you go, a delve into the world of data in all its glory and failings. And if you're in the market for data, make sure you reach out to Eden and his team. Word on the street is that they'll take care of you. So definitely mention this podcast when you reach out to them. And that serves another one of our core strategy specific episodes, in this case, on data and research strategy. So make sure you listen to that William Pauling episode, season three, episode two on data in the context of more of that strategy style of segmentation and targeting. And we've nearly finished all of these core strategy episodes, all nine of them. There's only one left, which is sales strategy. And we're going to be following up with some of these episodes and doing duplicate ones in slightly specific areas like I've done here with the Will and Pauling and Eden episode. And after this, I'm going to be interviewing someone who specifically specializes in cold email outreach. And I'm going to be covering every single one of these channel specific categories. At last count, there were probably 64 in total. So there's a lot of work to go. And thanks again for following. If you have feedback or want to comment, that's great. Tell me about it. Give this podcast review on whatever client you're listening to right now. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Comment on a post. Send me a DM. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. Give me some suggestions even. A great way to do this is by joining my reverse newsletter where I send you an email each month and answer your questions or source information for you instead of the other way around. Go to hybrancy.substack.com to sign up. A dose of John is my Twitter handle or find the John James on LinkedIn. If you are into champagne, find me on Instagram under the handle Champagne Society. So follow, press the alert bell icon to receive notifications on your podcast listening app. Check out the Hybrancy YouTube channel too for snackable highlights and full episodes, all neatly categorized by topic via the playlist function. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening.